We just sang, uh, banish all my dark misgivings, still my doubting, calm my fear. And I wonder uh, how you are feeling this evening. Uh, perhaps that describes your heart quite well. Uh, perhaps you do feel doubtful. Uh, perhaps you do feel anxious. Perhaps you do have misgivings. This time of year and the weather sometimes doesn't help those feelings uh, very much. Uh, perhaps you feel uh, disheartened uh, by the state of the church, uh, locally or nationally, or indeed across the world. Uh, perhaps you remember times gone by where churches were full and uh, people seemed so much more enthusiastic and fervent and closer to God, and perhaps now you feel, as I say, discouraged, uh, anxious, wondering what's gone wrong, uh, why are things the way they are. Well, when Zechariah uh, prophesied, when Zechariah was preaching in the land of Judah, uh, the people of Israel at that time were feeling much like I've just described. Uh, they were disheartened and anxious and discouraged. Uh, they had returned home from being carried captive in Babylon, but the city walls of Jerusalem lay in ruins. Uh, they started to rebuild the temple, but they had not got very far. They hadn't got much beyond laying the foundation. Uh, they remembered the days where they had a king sitting on a throne, but now they only had a governor uh, who was answerable to some extent, the king in Persia. And all around them, everything just seemed very bleak and a far cry from what Israel, what Judah used to be in years gone by. Not only that, they were surrounded by nations which hated them. Uh, as they sought to rebuild the temple, the surrounding nations uh, hindered them and uh, harassed them as they sought to do God's will. And uh, in many times they succeeded and the work stopped completely. And the Jews were anxious and discouraged and utterly disheartened. And it's to that context which the prophet Zechariah comes to speak to Israel. And his message to them is a message for us as well, if we are feeling in a similar way. Uh, what Zechariah has to say to them, he says equally to us. And it's interesting what Zechariah says first, or more importantly, what God says through Zechariah to the people who are discouraged and vexed. Look what it says in verse 2. Or I'll read from verse 1. It says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, 
to whom the former prophets preached. God sends Zechariah with a message of repentance. He says to the Jews living in Jerusalem, he says, return to me and I will return to you. And don't miss the significance of what God is saying there. Because remember, the people are back in the land. They're no longer in Babylon. They're back in Jerusalem. And they have started to rebuild the temple. And yet God says to them, return to me and I will return to you. The people were busy... They were doing what you might call God's will in building the temple and returning back to the land, and yet they had not repented. Their hearts were not yet right with God. Their bodies were in the right place. Their hands, to some extent, were doing the right things, but their heart was not where it should be. That's a warning for us as well. Uh, Don't confuse activity for repentance. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to do that. Confusing activity for God and confusing it with repentance to God. Uh, Sometimes we can feel guilty. Uh, We can have guilt on our conscience, ways in which we're not putting God first in our life. And instead of repenting, of that sin, we kind of leave that undisturbed and we seek to do more things in another area. You ever done this? And we seek to obey God or obey God in other ways and we hope somehow that God will be pleased with these other things and he will not worry too much about this other area where we're not putting him in the place where he should be. But you see, when we do that, That's not far off trying to bribe God. We're saying to God, look what I'm doing over here. Please ignore what's happening over there. And that, in a sense, is what is happening with the people of Judah here. Uh, They are doing the right thing, sort of. They're in the right place. But their heart is not dedicated to God. And God says to them, this is what you need to address first. And that's what he says to us. If we're anxious and discouraged about the state of our own lives, or the state of the church, or even the state of the nation, God says first, look at your own heart. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's where our first port of call must be. If we don't return to him, then we cannot expect blessing. But the message doesn't stop there. Uh, Thankfully, that's not where the message stops. Uh, God's word through Zechariah continues, and we see Zechariah sees a vision three months later. Uh, Presumably, the people took to heart the message that God had for them through Zechariah, and they repented, And look at verse 7. It says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Sheba, in the second year of Darius, 
the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Uh, at night time, God gives Zechariah a vision. Now, it's easy to get scared when we read the Bible and we read these kind of visions because they sound very odd, don't they? Uh, they're not familiar to us and we kind of wonder, well, what's going on here? Uh, these often strange and they can seem weird and wonderful visions that these prophets see, but we needn't be scared of them. Uh, these visions which God gives people, these uh, physical illustrations, if you like, are designed to teach us important lessons, to encourage us or to wake us up. Uh, God knows sometimes we need to see something physically, or at least uh, we need to make a picture in our mind's eye to understand the importance of what he is saying. Now, we all know, don't we, how a story can uh, be more, uh, can teach us more than just a simple lecture. A story or a picture can often teach us more. And that is what God is giving the people through this vision to Zechariah. And Zechariah sees a man riding on a red horse, uh, standing among myrtle trees in a hollow or in a gorge, we might say, quite possibly uh, the Kidron Valley, just outside Jerusalem. And behind this man, the horse, there are all sorts of horses, uh, red, sorrel, and, and white. Uh, red probably refers to a kind of auburn colour. Uh, sorrel is chestnut, we might say, and white is white. That's fairly simple to explain. And these aren't unusual colours for horses. Uh, when we see these, it's very tempting, isn't it, to sort of think, oh, what does the red mean, and what does the sorrel mean, and what does the white mean? And it's possible that they might have significance, but I don't know what it is. And it's not wise to speculate too much. Uh, what Zechariah sees is a man on a red horse, and behind him is a large and diverse group of other horses with men on them as well. Now remember, in the time when the Bible was written, horses were most obviously associated with battle, with war. Uh, we don't tend to make quite the same assumption uh, nowadays because Obviously, we have tanks and planes and other things now. But back in the days when Zechariah was prophesying, horses were primarily for war. And do you remember that phrase? Hopefully, as I read the passage earlier, you could hear a phrase which kept on coming up again and again and again. Uh, the name given to God, the Lord of hosts. In fact, in that one verse which I read, did you notice that in verse 3? where it says, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You think that's overkill, isn't it? Uh, but the whole point is God is giving us uh, the message that he is a God of hosts, a God of armies. God is a general. And here, Zechariah sees a man riding on a red horse with uh, an army behind him, or perhaps a scouting party for an army. And these horses are going out throughout the whole earth, it says. Uh, they're walking to and fro throughout the whole earth. And they report back 
to the man on the horse who's described as the angel of the Lord. You can see that in verse 11. Now, I wish I had time uh, to talk more about the angel of the Lord. Um, I will do, trustfully, uh, God willing, in the uh, messages coming up in the evening, in the next few weeks. Uh, But suffice to say for the moment is that this angel of the Lord is the commander of the Lord's armies. Uh, You might want to do this this evening or this week. Do a little word search in your Bible, perhaps use a computer, and uh, look up that phrase, the angel of the Lord, and you'll see he's a character who appears many times in the Old Testament. Uh, this was a Sunday school lesson. I would uh, ask you, um, who do you think the angel of the Lord is? And like most Sunday school lessons, the answer is Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus is the angel of the Lord. But I'm running ahead of myself. That comes later. For now, let's just say the angel of the Lord is the commander of God's armies. And this scouting party, all these horsemen and horses, come back after traveling throughout the whole earth. And they say uh, to him in verse 11, to the angel of the Lord, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. They say they've gone throughout the whole world, and they can see the nations are at ease. They're quiet. It's peaceful. Nothing is happening. You might think, well, that's a good thing. That's nice. The world is at peace. But we see from the angel of the Lord's response that this is not a good thing. Look at verse 12. It says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? The angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army, speaks to the Lord of hosts and says, how long will you not have mercy on Judah? This is the point. Judah is suffering. The nation round about Judah are harassing them, attacking them even. They're still suffering. Even though they've returned from Babylon, life is still hard because the nations round about are making it hard for them. And the angel of the Lord says to the Lord of hosts, how long? How long will you be angry with Judah? How long will you allow this state of affairs to continue? Look at the nations. They're resting comfortable. They're easy. When will they be called to account for the evil that they did to your people? When will you deal with them as you dealt with Judah? Why are they sitting at ease when they've done so much evil. They cry out to God and they say, God, why aren't you doing anything? Why are you silent? We can think the same thing as well sometimes. Uh, Perhaps we're not surrounded by physical enemies in quite the same way, but as I said at the beginning, we can often be discouraged by uh, the fact that our churches aren't bursting with people. Uh, There's a lot of opposition, isn't there, to what the Bible teaches, a lot of opposition to us even. Uh, We can feel it perhaps getting uh, more and more difficult, more and more stifling in the society in which we live. And we can be tempted to ask as well, God, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you proving the power of your word? Why don't we see more people coming to know you? 
Why don't we see more people coming into churches? Why don't we see more people repenting and turning to Christ? And we too can feel like God is silent. God isn't doing anything, that it doesn't work. Preaching is a waste of time. Sharing the gospel is a waste of time because nobody seems to respond. Sometimes we can feel hopeless and disappointed. But God responds to the angel of the Lord. And you can see his response in verse 13. It says, And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. God responds to the angel, and he says, yes, the nations are sitting comfortably. Yes, for the moment, they are sitting uh, peacefully. But I will come back to Zion. I will come back to Jerusalem. Did you notice that language it says? He says, a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. A surveyor's line was a length of string which would be used to mark out where a wall would be built. I assume it still happens today. I don't know, probably through lasers nowadays. But in Zechariah's day, it was a surveyor's line. And it was the first step before building work was to take place. And what God's saying is, I'm stretching out my surveyor's line. Don't lose heart. I am doing a work here. You might think I'm doing nothing, but I am returning back to you. Building will commence. I am rebuilding the nation of Israel. That's the comfort to us as well. When we think God is doing nothing, when we think God is silent, very often that's the time when God himself is making plans to do something. What we need to do is not lose heart. What we need to do is not lose hope. Because God has a plan even when we cannot see it. And that leads on to the second vision that Zechariah sees. We've seen the man on the red horse leading this scouting party of uh, many horses. But now in verse 18, he looks up again. He says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? So he answered, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Judah. Uh, Zechariah looks up and he sees four horns. Now, this is really strange for us because this is not the way we think at all. Uh, it's very hard for us to imagine a kind of disembodied horn doing anything. Because a horn is an inanimate object, isn't it? Uh, a horn doesn't mean very much to us. But in the Bible... Uh, in the days when Zechariah was preaching, a horn represented power and authority. Uh, that is what a horn pictured. And so when Zechariah sees these four horns, he's seeing four symbols of power. 
and of authority and of strength. And the angel describes what these horns are. In verse 19, he says, These are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was scattered by Assyria. The southern kingdom was scattered by Babylon. And because there's four horns, it's probably referring to other nations as well who looked on and helped. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at Obadiah, didn't we? And we saw how Edom gloated over Judah when Babylon took them captive. And they even uh, sold some of the Jews who escaped to Babylon. And so these four horns represent these nations which conspired against Israel and against Judah and had scattered them in Assyria and in Babylon. And God describes them as these four terrifying horns, full of power, full of authority, full of strength. And then he says to Zechariah, look up again. Then it says in verse 20, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Zechariah seen these terrifying strong four horns. He's seen what they've done by scattering Israel and Judah. But he looks again and sees four craftsmen. And the angel says, these craftsmen are going to terrify the horns. Now that seems weird, doesn't it? And it's supposed to sound weird. Uh, because if you want to destroy uh, a great army, uh, a great strong uh, nation, you don't generally try to do it with a trowel or with a paintbrush. You don't want to send a group of craftsmen. You want to send an army of soldiers, don't you? You think maybe that will do it. If we can raise a big enough army, then we can deal with Edom. Then we can deal with Assyria. Then we can deal with Babylon. We can deal with these nations if we just make a big enough army. But God says that's not how you're going to deal with these nations which are afflicting you. He said instead it's going to be craftsmen. They are going to terrify the nations. And it's very likely that these craftsmen are referring to those who would rebuild the temple. Uh, those with their trowels and their hammers and their saws or whatever else they used in those days to build, it is they who are going to terrify the nations. That is how Israel, this is how Judah, is going to win the victory. In other words, God says to his people, your strength does not come from force of arms. Your strength does not from, come from your cunning in battle or your wealth or any other human thing. Your strength comes from your relationship with me, which is what the temple symbolized. The temple was the physical embodiment of God's presence with his people. God is telling his people that the way you're going to conquer the nations 
is not through your strength, not through your cunning, but by rebuilding and restoring your relationship with me. That is where your strength lies. It's interesting, if you look at the book of Nehemiah, that famous book which describes how the people of Judah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. There's a very famous verse, which you can find it on lots of cards. It's a one which you put on calendars and things. But it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And that same lesson, giving to the Jews at this time, God still gives to his church today. Uh, we see the church surrounded by enemies. Uh, people who don't like the Bible, who don't like what it teaches, who think that we are bigoted and uh, even wicked for believing what it says. And yet, the way God says we win the victory isn't through using the weapons of this world, not through a sort of tit-for-tat response. We win the battle by restoring and deepening our relationship with God. Because uh, we are building a temple as well, aren't we? Uh, it's not a physical one made of bricks and mortar. Uh, that's not the temple we're building. Uh, we're building a church of people. Uh, we're building the kingdom of God. That's why when Jesus sent out his disciples, what did he say to them? He said, I'm going to make you fishers of Men, that's how we build. We build by sharing the gospel. We build by sharing the message of peace with people who do not yet believe. Uh, we don't take up weapons. Uh, we don't uh, try to fight the world in the way they fight against us. Instead, we've been given a message of peace to proclaim. A message of reconciliation with guts. We are, in that sense, craftsmen, not soldiers. Of course, there is another sense in which we are soldiers. We are given the armor, of course. But in a very real sense, we are not soldiers. We are craftsmen. We're sent with a message of peace. Uh, in preparing for this, uh, I heard of a professor who was visited by his student in 1941, which, of course, was in the midst of the Second World War. And as the student uh, sat with his professor, uh, message after message came uh, to the professor on the phone and uh, through messages coming to him, uh, telling him of all sorts of atrocities that were happening. Uh, students who had been killed, uh, wives telling of husbands who had been arrested, uh, a pastor who had been given... Uh, was under interrogation by the Gestapo. And all these terrible stories came to this professor. But the student was struck by how he responded. Uh, the natural reaction would be to respond with outrage or anger or perhaps bitterness and resentment. Uh, to perhaps think, what can I do? How can I fix this problem? But do you know what the professor said? The professor's response was to say, the Lord will scatter them in a single moment. Do you see what that professor understood? He understood what Paul was to teach um, in the book, or 
Paul did teach in the book of Romans. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We don't need to fear the enemies around us. The people of Judah did not need to fear the nations around them because they had a God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. All we need to worry about is being faithful to the task which God has given to us. Sometimes we wonder what God is doing. Uh, Sometimes we think God should be working quicker. Uh, Sometimes we think he should be working differently. But we don't know what God should or shouldn't be doing. We don't need to. All we need to do is obey the task that he has given to us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to build his kingdom, soul by soul, one by one, if needs be. Because God promises, in the end, he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So are you anxious this evening? Are you discouraged? Are you disheartened? Well, if so, hear the message of Zechariah. First, examine your own heart. Have you been drifting away from God? Well, return to him. He will return to you. Secondly, don't be afraid. God sees your suffering. God knows and he cares. And thirdly, God will build his church. He will complete the task one day. All we need to do is be faithful to him. And we will see one day in the end. And that's why I've chosen... Uh, as our final hymn, number 183. 183. And it's a, I think it's a carol. It, it's more or less a carol. Uh, a carol which teaches us about what God already has done, which gives us the confidence to know what he will do in the future. And it's number 183. Thou didst leave thy throne... And thy kingly crown, when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. So we'll stand to sing in closing number 183.